Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner here on your source for cool jazz and more. The EAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. That's Interstellar Overdrive by Pink Floyd on their album, The Pipe Where the Gates of Dawn, released on this day in 1967. What you're about to hear is a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Send your thoughts about this show to talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome. Once again, Grace in our studios. I think it's been about a year, maybe a little bit more. We have Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who joins us in the studio. She has written in the books Half of a Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus, and now she's come up with this amazing series of short stories, The Thing Around Your Neck. And Chimamanda, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's great to see you again. It's, uh, it's good to be here. This, this is... A little different than what came before, short stories. Does, did you start with short stories or did you start with a novel? Huh. I think I, I did both at the same time. So some of the stories in this book, I mean, the stories that I wrote um, nine years ago, for example, in the book and stories that I wrote last year. And so I was writing stories when I was working on my novels. And, ah. and so there are really two forms You're that cheating I, on your novel and writing short no, stories? No, I, I, just I, <laughs> I feel that both, I sort of, I really, as a writer and as a reader, I mm-hmm. really like both forms. I, I really like the short story form as well as the novel. Mm-hmm. And I think both are, you know, sometimes people talk about short stories as though somehow they're the less accomplished siblings oh, oh no. of the novel. And I just feel that they're, they're equals. They're just both equally um, difficult forms, mm-hmm. but also they can be quite satisfying. I mean, short stories are, I mean, if they're done well, they they leave you with something almost more intense than a novel. I think so too. You know? And I think as a writer, there's also a sense of intensity in writing them because you're, you're so aware that you have this little space mm-hmm. to compress emotion that you, you know, you can't stumble and fall and get up. You have to get it right the first <laughs> time. Right? <laughs> but with a novel, you can, you know, get up and still somehow succeed. Right, you can, your wandering is different in a novel than you can, the way you wander in a short story, you know. And in these, a, a lot of the main characters, not all of them though, are women takes place in Nigeria and here. I, I, it's an eye-opening to me because just as a student of uh, culture and cultures and the world, you're opening up all these different worlds that flow out of Nigeria to America and back again. It's a world that few people have a window on unless you're Nigerian. Mm. And, and I guess a lot of it is your observation. It's not just you. What you've lived through is what you've yes. seen through your um, fellows. I'm a very keen watcher of people's walls. I'm also a very keen eavesdropper. <laughs> you have and, to be. <laughs> and, uh, I am, you know, I just, I never mind my business. I just love to <laughs> ask inappropriate questions of people. Mm-hmm. And, but I sort of, I'm, I just feel like I'm always collecting stories, and particularly the Nigerian experience in America, that I go to Nigerian gatherings in the U.S., for example. I'm just watching people. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, just watching the sort of the subtle dynamics between people and how. And I think the thing that I, that really interests me is how, um, you know, how when people move to the U.S. from Nigeria, and I think this is true for many countries, the dynamics of their relationships change. I think that I have observed, for example, that um, women, when they come to the U.S., in some ways adopt and they sort of realize that that they're no longer you know you're no longer in the space where family is there and people are enforcing the status quo in in every possible way mm-hmm. so i find women who suddenly are doing things that surprise even themselves 
finding their voices in many ways, um, annoying their husbands in good ways. <laughs> <laughs> so you you sort of hear Nigerian men say something like, oh, since she came to America, she's become very insulting. But it's actually that, you know, she's speaking up a little more because she's in a place where, for example, the law protects her. Where it's just not in Nigeria. I think that in Nigeria, I like to joke about if a man cheats, his wife is sent away in Nigeria. In the U.S., if a man cheats, he is sent away. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, but I, I do think, and also, of course, my work, I'm very interested in gender because yes. I'm, I'm, I'm a very happy feminist. And I think that I think that we live in a world that's still very much... Um, benefits and and sort of rewards men in ways it doesn't women but i think it's always a question of degree so i think that in nigeria often it's so much more overt how as a woman you realize that um you just don't get the kind of protection that you you should in things like marriage in work for example you can feel this feel that in this book a lot with a lot of the characters i i i but let me ask you a question about that i'm by the way again we're talking to chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, her latest work is The Thing Around Your Neck. Many of you know her from Half of Yellow Sun. She joins us in the studio again. It's great to have her here. I wonder if you think that America is transformed by the cultures that become part of it and change it. And then in return, America transforms those cultures, no matter what they are. And a lot of people who are Nigerian who come here go back and forth. I wonder how what you just described, whether it's the feminist perspective or a womanist perspective, um, how Nigerian women who have been affected by being in America, affected, I mean to say, mm-hmm. how that might affect Nigeria back home. Mm-hmm. Does it begin to change the culture at home as well? Um, I mean, you get a sense of that from some of your stories. Mm-hmm. Like the one woman I thought who demanded to go back home mm-hmm. with, her, with mm-hmm. her big man husband who had another woman there. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if if the, this culture changes that mm. affects Nigeria. I think that's actually an interesting um, question. I and I don't know that I've thought. I, I suppose it it does in a way. Yes, I mean I. Um, but there's always. Uh, but I do think that leaving home just changes home anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, for both men and women that. Um, when you've left, you know that cliche about you can never really go back home? I think it is true. And that in the end, you end up living in this place that isn't Nigeria, isn't America. It's, mm-hmm. it's somehow this great, it's in your head. You end up living in your head, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, but I, I suppose, yes, that, that having lived in the U.S. and sort of, because I, you know, my story, for example, is that I, I spend a lot of time in Nigeria. So I consider Nigeria home and, and the U.S. home as well. And my friends, when I'm in Lagos, for example, will, and we're going out to eat, and they often warn me, now, don't ask for steamed vegetables. Nobody does steamed vegetables in Nigeria. That's an Americanism, right? Because I'm always, we, we sort of go to restaurants, and then I'm asking, can I get just steamed? Just steamed. No, no, no oil, no but just steamed. And people look at me very strangely, because, you know, our vegetables are often done, you know, they're done with oil, they're and, and cooked and cooked and yeah, cooked. And, right. and overcooked. Right. And I want them really crisp and steamed. <laughs> and so my friends will say, oh, God, she's doing that American thing again. <laughs> so, you know, and to me, um, I don't necessarily see it as, but of course, obviously, it's it's an American um, uh, thing that I have picked up from living here. How long have you lived in America? Off and on since 1997. And just for our, our listeners who are just becoming aware of your book, may not have... Um, Read half of a yellow sun. They should if they haven't. <laughs> Talk a bit about your sojourn from Nigeria to America. Just 
for people. I um, so I came. I came. I grew up in Nigeria. I grew up in a university town. Had a very happy childhood. Um, but then I left Nigeria because I didn't want to become a doctor. And I had done a year and a half of medical school, and I was just hopelessly unhappy. And you do well in school. They tell you you have to be a doctor. And so I went along with that. <laughs> but anyway, I decided to flee. And I had been writing. I really have been writing since I was six. And I've always known that I wanted to write, but um, had imagined that I would have to earn a living doing something sensible, mm-hmm. such as medicine. <laughs> but then I decided to leave. My sister, who um, lived here in the U.S. already, uh, you know, said I could come and stay with her if I wanted to. So, you know, I sort of took the SATs all over again. I, and so I came to the U.S. and, um, yeah, and sort of went to school and then kept writing and, and wrote my first novel when I was a senior in college. This Sojourn to America, I wonder when, when did you first meet uh, Chinua Achebe? I, uh, Chinua Achebe is the writer whose work is most important to me. He's and an amazing, he amazing is. writer. He that is. trilogy, Things Fall Apart, that he wrote, yes. it's just one of the most amazing trilogies ever. I, I agree, absolutely. And he's also a man of just immense integrity. Oh, God. Make me cry and, just thinking about him. <laughs> <laughs> and he... Um, but, you know, it's also that thing where I didn't want to meet him for very long because he was my hero, and I wanted to keep keep some distance between mm-hmm. myself and my hero. And and so, for example, my editor sent him my book, the manuscript of Half of a Yellow Sun, and didn't tell me, by the way. Oh, she didn't tell didn't me. Didn't tell you. And then when she heard back from him, um, you know, she called me and she said, Chimamanda, are you sitting down? Because I've just heard from Chinua Achebe about your book. And I thought, Chinua Achebe, my book? What? But, um, <laughs> and I remember sort of crying after she read out what he had said, which was very gracious and kind. But What did he say? He said um, that I had uh, the wisdom of ancient storytellers and I had come almost fully made. And I knew what was at stake and what to do about it. And I was fearless. And I just cried because I thought, yes. Wonderful. <laughs> but, but also, I still didn't want to meet him. Uh-huh. But finally, in, the, um, in New York, um, I can't remember who organized uh, a reception for him. Somebody, the arts club or something. And I was invited. And so I had to um, go say, uh, go pay my respects to him. And I remember sort of going up to him and greeting him instead of the traditional Nigerian way. And he then turned to me completely expressionless and said, I thought you were running away from me. Oh. So he apparently had been told that I was avoiding him, but um, he's uh, he's really he's really lovely. The way you uh, approach these stories, I mean, it's you obviously also have a very deep political consciousness and conscious about social issues and political issues and what's happened in Nigeria, and you, it's very hard for someone to frame these stories without it becoming pedantic and boring often. <laughs> but you but you do it without being pedantic and boring. I mean, you whether it's the Biafran War or Abachi's dictatorship in Nigeria, I mean, really, that's that's really a, an underpinning of a lot of your work, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think, but but I think also that um, I am sort of a, a, a horribly political animal, right? Um, and quite happily so. But also, I'm, I'm very interested in people. Mm-hmm. I am, in the end, really interested. Because I think that politics, in the end, is people. And so I think that a lot of my work, I, I can't, particularly when I was writing Half of a Yellow Sun, and I was so overwhelmed with with the process of that book. And with, I mean, it took so much from me emotionally, and, and I, I, I nearly went mad. But I remember I had done so much research and I had so many facts, right? But I kept saying to myself, it's, it's not about the events and the facts, it's about the people. Mm-hmm. The people have to be at the center of it. Uh, otherwise, you just end up writing 
um, something that people will struggle to read. You know, I've never wanted to write the kinds of books that are like, that are like medicine, they're good for you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you don't actually like the bloody right. taste of the thing, right, but it's right. good for you. I don't like fiction of that sort. I sort of want to, to write fiction that isn't like medicine, that people actually finish because they want to. You want to be a piece time, of fruit, not, pe- yeah, not, exactly. not, a, not a teaspoon of castor <laughs> yeah, oil. Exactly. <laughs> I need a strawberry. Strawberries, yeah. right, right. Um, but at, but at the same time, having being being sort of anchored in in ideas and in 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 some ways political and social realities. You get the sense from reading these stories and your other books, but I'm just just these stories. By the way, again, we're talking to Chimamanda um, Ngozi Adichie. Her latest work is "The Thing Around Your Neck." Many of you know her from Half of Yellow Sun. She joins us in the studio again. It's great to have her here. The this this. The pictures that are painted of Nigeria, obviously you, you love to, to look at the people, as you said, and kind of watch people. So there's this, the, the, the beauty of the culture and the people come through, but it's also very hard. I mean, whether it was um, the corruption and the university professor losing his pension and or the woman whose son was killed and is trying to leave the country and her husband was a crusading journalist or any of the other people hiding from mobs in a riot. And 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 obviously you, you said you lived in the university life and a lot of this takes place in universities, but but you felt that growing up. And this mm-hmm. is a mm-hmm. I'm just it's describing this is what this book did for me. I mean it just kind of really gets you to feel what it's like to live inside of oppression. Mm. I mean it's um because I I grew up you know, so growing up in sort of early nineteen eighties Nigeria, things and, you know, it was my version of Nigeria because there are many right, right. Nigerians. So it was sort of a safe, um, you know, safe, secluded, sort of middle-class academic Nigeria. But as a child, I knew that things started to change. And I like to say that I think I started to realize it when we stopped having different kinds of jam at breakfast. Mm. And then slowly margarine disappeared from the breakfast table. And then bread disappeared when the military government stopped. Um, they sort of had the scheme about stopping the importation of wheat because blah, blah, oh, right. blah. Anyway, but so it meant that we started to have boiled yams for breakfast, which horrified me. Because here I was, this child who thought breakfast has to be toast, egg, and margarine, and butter, and, and jam. See what the British did to you? Yes. <laughs> I'm hopelessly cool. Yeah. We're all, you know, in, in one way or the other, hopelessly um, colonized people. But I am walking on it. No, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's that sort of thing where, and you know, because they, they had stopped funding the federal universities. So for, for a while, my parents weren't paid. And so things just changed. And as a child, you sort of notice it. And then you get older, and then there's a new military government. And, you know, there's the coup announcement on the radio. And you just feel the sense of helplessness. And then on the streets to see soldiers just flogging people and people being accepting of it, that, that for me was very haunting. And I think it wasn't just the violence of it. It was that it was a sort of casual violence and that we all saw it and did nothing. But in some ways, what could anybody do? But it was just the idea that I think it, it became that, that for me, the fear was this is becoming normal for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think all of those things are, are central to, to, and, and these short stories, I mean, the ones about Nigeria and, and the military government, I, I wrote, um, you know, maybe six or seven years ago. Oh, really? So I wrote, I mean, I don't think I could, I, well, I don't know, I don't know how fresh the memories, Nigeria, we've had a democracy for the past, uh, 10 years now. I like to call it a democracy of sorts. 
Um. It is, though. It is. It's different than it was. It, oh, but it, yeah. That. I mean, now there's press freedom. Now people actually are held accountable for violence. I mean, a lot has changed. And I think it's also changed the way we, we look at public officials. People are less willing to accept rubbish from them. Because, you know, nobody yeah. has a gun. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, so, right. That's the big difference. Yeah, it makes a difference. I wonder that the, the you also touch on all these notions of love and what love holds between man and woman, and uh, woman and woman, and woman and woman, and yeah, all that, and man and man, and man and man. <laughs> well, there was the I keep thinking of the professor who sees his wife, she comes back. I love that, <laughs> the power of that love that he feels her there even after she's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, that story called Ghosts is actually very close to my heart because in many ways it's a love letter to my father. Uh, and my mother is very much alive and well. Your um, father's passed? No, no, th- no. They're both alive There's and no. well okay, good, and good. happily married for almost 50 years. Wow. Congratulations um, to them. <laughs> I know. Um, quite shocking. I don't know how the heck they did it. But um, <laughs> they. Uh, but my father, and, and I, I adore my parents. I really am very lucky to have wonderful parents. My father in particular... I just, I just adore him. And so he, in some ways, the, the, the little details of the story, I mean, he's a retired professor who wasn't paid his pensions for a while, as, as, oh, as, as this... happened in, yeah, mm-hmm. it, that, all of that actually did. It's all based on sort of facts. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> um, and I, but I just wanted to, to try and capture what it is like to live your life in this town that you once loved and a town that's going into decline. But it, at the same time, you manage to find contentment in it, which is really my father's story. Because for so long, my sister, for example, tried to get him to come to America. And he just said no. He said, you know, my life is here. And he said, you know, yes, I don't get paid my pension, but my life is here. This, it's mine. And I found that very moving. And so the story really was sort of about um, the ways in which we can find contentment in even the you know, less desirable circumstances. But, you, but that's interesting because that is part of life. Mm. No matter how difficult life is, people find joy in the moment or in someone else or in part of their being that's how we survive it mm. yeah I think you know I'm sort of and, and I think also um, that just the idea of the ways that we connect and then don't mm-hmm. um, interests me one of the most gripping pieces for me was this story about and I'm sorry I'm blocking on the names of the characters I apologize but uh, um, the, the the Igbo woman and the Hauser woman mm-hmm. caught in, in Kondo in the riot mm. where the houses were killing Igbos in the street and and they found themselves together in this room. Yes. Now, speaking of connection, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd wanted to, I mean, it was vaguely inspired, that story, while well, reading about, because once in a while in, in northern Nigeria, these riots erupt and, you know, um, Hausa Muslims kill um and it's sort of generalizing because they but uh, kill Igbo Christians and then often Igbo Christians retaliate and it just becomes this horrible cycle. And I just, I remember um, an aunt of mine who lives in the north telling me a story about um, saying that she, um, she knew a friend who had been hiding with a woman who was Hausa and Muslim. So that's where, and I, and she didn't know anything else. She didn't know any other details, but I was deeply um, touched by that. And uh-huh. I thought, you know, because in the end, human beings will find ways to connect. And, and you can, I think that people very easily orchestrate the sorts of killings and politicized nonsense. But then, you know, in this little space, there's two women 
find an old way to connect. And in that story, one of the things I love about my fiction, one of the things I love about writing fiction is how sometimes strange things happen when I write and characters surprise me. And stories take a turn that just amaze me. So in that story, when um, there's a point where the, the Hausa woman sort of decides to expose a body part to... <laughs> yeah, right, right. For a good reason. For a good reason. Now, that surprised me. I didn't know she would do that. So well, when you were that writing, happened, you didn't, I didn't, didn't know that was going to come it through. It really just, just happened. Uh-huh. And it was just one of those moments where I thought I, the character had become alive. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's exhilarating for me when that happens. But that must have been important on a number of levels. I mean... You're, uh, many of the characters you write about, the main characters are Igbo, most of them. Is it not just correct to say Igbo or Igbo? It's it's actually it's 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 neither. It's the GB sound is somehow here. It's b, b, b. So it's Igbo. Igbo. Well done. Ibo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> most of your characters are Igbo. Mm. Um, but so when you found this humanity and this character that you created, who's this Hazel woman. And that was a very special moment that I kept, because somehow, I don't know how that's happening in reality in Nigeria at the moment, but somehow that gap has to be bridged. Mm. Oh, it has to be, and, and it is in many ways. I really feel, I've always felt that our problem isn't that we sometimes make more of ethnicity than we should, that I, I really feel often that we forget how politicized these things are. Because, you know, you... <clears throat> You, you will, it, it, when it's convenient for people in power, they will exploit ethnic differences. And when people don't have jobs and don't have a sense of opportunity, it's very easy to, to reduce them to people who are full of resentment about the other, the sort of other, which, you know, the reason you don't have anything going well for you is because these Christian Igbo people are taking it away from you. Right. And of course it's not true, but you know, you believe it, it's easy to believe. And, but then on the other hand, you see friendships. I mean, people, my, most of my mother's family, um, they live in the north. And they have lived in the north for a long time. And they are very fluent Hausa speakers. And actually, my cousin, one of my cousins who grew up in Kano, said to me once, you know, I prefer Hausa people to Igbo people. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, well, well done to you. <laughs> and, you know, my, my brother is married to a Yoruba woman, for example. Uh-huh. And so sometimes when... Um, when ethnicity is spoken about, I think, and my sister's first husband, um, before she remarried, was Yoruba. So my nephew has a Yoruba name, and you know, sort of has Yoruba relatives. And it's always interesting to me when people sort of talk about ethnicity as though it's this thing that, um, that somehow it's this sort of solid rock that you know we carry around and we can't move beyond in some ways. And for me, Yoruba is the sister-in-law I love. Right? And her family members, who are my family as well, and of course it means we can't speak the same language. So we, we speak we speak English, because we she doesn't speak Igbo and I don't speak Yoruba, but you know she's still family. And um, so I'm sort of a, I I don't, but but at the same time, of course, I realize that there are particularly political differences that you will sometimes hear in Nigeria things like, oh, we can't have an Igbo president. Those Igbo people can't be trusted to be president, that sort of thing. And we do a lot of geopolitics in Nigeria. So we're always, and, and you know, because Nigeria, we have such a fractious history. So, you know, you have to be very careful who you appoint to head a um, federal agency, for example, because you want to make sure that the federal character is, so uh-huh. if you have a northerner doing one agency, you have to have a southerner. And then a minority group might say, well, look, you ignored us. So, I mean, it, it to be in <laughs> Nigerian politics is so interesting and more so because it's so 
identity, I mean, it's so geopolitical, identity right. matters, you know, which region are you from, what ethnic group, who did they put in that position? And on the one hand, it, it's it's depressing to me sometimes, because I think it often means that we don't get the best people. But then I realize because of our history, it's important. It's important for people to feel included. And that maybe in 50 years, <laughs> we will get there. I wonder, is it, is it, is it different in the university setting or different in Lagos than it is? In other words, if you, before the madness of the Balkans, Sarajevo was a place where everybody intermarried and lived together. Baghdad was a place where, for the Americans came in, that 75% of all the marriages were mixed between Shia and Sunnah, you know, and Mm. I wonder if that same dynamic um, takes place in the cosmopolitan world of Nigeria. I think it. I think more and more now. I mean, for, forty years ago, no, right? People people moved to Lagos and kept. People played together. They didn't really intermarry as much. Now, with my generation, it's happening more and more. So you'll find, you know, sort of the Yoruba marrying the Igbo. But actually, it's interesting because I think um, there's a lot more sort of Yoruba Igbo marriages or sort of southern. Marriages than the sort of north-south marriages. Right. And I think that religion is a major um, reason. You're listening to a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Send your thoughts about this show to talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. On a way to break, it's my prayer by the Platters. Great song. Hit number one of this day in 1956. And here in my heart you will stay. Mark Steiner, and yes, that Superfly, Curtis Mayfield, the film Superfly, was released on this day, featuring a soundtrack by Curtis Mayfield. Just a reminder that we are listening to a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Send your thoughts about this show to talk at steinershow.org, or tweet me at Mark Steiner.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Steiner. It's Mamanda Ngozi Adichie has not fled the studio. She's still with us. She has written in the books Half of a Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus, and now she's come up with this amazing series of short stories, The Thing Around Your Neck. When we Earlier in this conversation, you, we talked about um, you're not wanting to be a medical student. Some of your, I mean, your characters are medical students, which I find interesting, but... Um, I really am very curious about you as a writer and where that began. Um, you know, I, it's a skill that one can teach, but it's something that I think is also inside you, no matter how much you want to teach it. I, I really feel that I I was meant to write. I sort of really believe this. This is this is what I was, you know, this is what the universe um, planned for me. And I really have, I've been writing since I was, since I could spell. And, and when I was seven, I really was convinced I was a writer. And, mm-hmm. you know, at eight, nine, and I was doing little books and illustrating them and, and forcing my, my poor family members to read them. <laughs> and, and, and for me, writing has always been, it's, it's very difficult. It's one of those things. It's difficult to, um, you know, to talk about, um, why I write or how I, I don't even know how to. Right. Because I write. I just do. And it's, it's what makes me, when it's going well, it's really what makes me happiest. And when it's not going well, <laughs> it's what makes me most, um, obsessively depressed. <laughs> and when you say when it's not going well, can, is there something you feel about mm-hmm. the way the words just aren't working for you yeah. at that moment? Is yeah. that what you mean? Yes. I just know when it's not going well. It doesn't matter if I've written 20 pages. I just know it's rubbish. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and it makes me really unhappy. <laughs> and then the, the other times when you, you're sitting there in front of your laptop and nothing is happening. And you want something to happen. You want magic. And, you know, magic doesn't come all the time. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so are there points as a writer when... Are there points in a day or points whether it's restful or or being sleepy that 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 when things come you find things pour out more easily I think um in general at, at night I find you're a night writer mm, I am so I'm the sort of person I'll stay up all night sometimes uh-huh I'm half of a yellow sun I just sort of became this person who slept during the day <laughs> and so I you know I just uh, yeah during the the period of writing that book I, I just I was a little crazy. <laughs> takes that though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> and whoever you're with has to understand that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's imperative. I mean, family members, I wouldn't return phone calls. I, you mm-hmm. know, they would worry about me. And so my brother said to me once, "Can you just every Friday just send an email, just say I'm okay, or send a text, just say I'm okay? That's all. That's all we ask." <laughs> it, it, <laughs> and, and do you find yourself when things have come to you, you just have to kind of I have something to write it down very quickly and keep it with you and go back to it. Yeah, I, I have a notebook in my, my bag. I, I always have a notebook. And I'm the sort of person, sometimes I wake up to go to the bathroom at night and I, I have to write something down because I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm worried about forgetting it. Right. Yeah, that happens. And and those things can become some of these stories. Yeah, they, you end up, and you know, there are things that I have in my notebook. I don't know what I'm going to do with them or how, but then you keep them knowing that it's, it's a gem. It's a potential. Right. Gem. And you have a lifetime to yeah, absolutely. let things unfold. Absolutely. Like the story yes. you just told me that you're not sure you're allowed to write, but you want to write anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So why did you choose among all these incredible stories, choose the thing around your neck as mm. the key? Um, 
Uh, actually, I don't know. It was really it was my editor, Robin's ah, suggestion. It's always the editor. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and I think it was. I mean, I, I've come initially. I wasn't sure, but I've come around to think that actually it was a very good suggestion. It's, it's a very strange title, and not necessarily the sort of title I imagine for a book I would write. But but I I, I quite like it, and I think it's also easy to remember, um, which I think is is a useful thing. That that story. I mean, you really felt for her, mm. Mm. what she went through, <laughs> because you, you also were touching someone who came out of a class that wasn't your class. Yeah, I mean that story for me is, of course, obviously it's about race, but it really it's about class. I mean, I was sort right. of interested in, in this woman who is, you know, obviously from a working class Nigerian family, and and she wins this American visa lottery and comes to the U.S. and suddenly she is in a relationship with <clears throat> a white person who is from the American upper class for whom, you know, life is sort of this easy road where, you you know, you take time off and you travel and explore. And for her, that's inconceivable because in her world, you don't do things like that. And and I'm all, I've, I've been, I, I feel that we don't often talk about class enough in Nigeria. And I, and I sometimes think that that divides us much more than... Mm-hmm. Ethnicity and even more than religion. That's a really hard thing to get to for a lot of people, especially mm. Americans. Yeah, the Americans like to pretend that class doesn't exist, Ex- which right. which I find hilarious. It doesn't affect your behavior, the way you look at the it, world, it affects the way you think. Everything it affects the amount of dignity the world gives you as well, which right. you know, which which for me is the most. So I really I can't stand when, for example, you know that somebody's being treated in a way that's condescending because you sort of just feel better than they uh, because you happen to have parents who had more you went to a better school that sort of rubbish it happens a lot in Nigeria and you know I, I know this because I happen to benefit from that system I, you know I happen to have been educated well and you speak English properly therefore people somehow give you a kind of respect that you don't necessarily deserve right and um, so it, it's class is something I'm very interested in and it's a, it's a very powerful pe- class and, and gender together are things that define a lot of what we think and do but we don't we're afraid to grapple with them a no, lot, I think. Yeah, we are. I think in America, I think, I think actually the three in the U.S., class, race, gender, we, yes. Americans are just not very comfortable. And I think the idea of, you know, we're all middle class, we're colorblind, and, you know, things are great for women <laughs> is the right. general idea in the right. U.S. And, you know, I do think that, Amer- that Americans have made an effort. I mean, th- there's a lot I admire about how, um, you know, efforts are made which for me, I mean, and of course, because the standards <laughs> are so low anyway, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> there's so much more that can be done. Right. So much more. By the way, again, we're talking to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Her latest work is The Thing Around Your Neck. Many of you know her from Half of Yellow Sun. She joins us in the studio again. It's great to have her here. Um, in in these other stories... So many of them. They're just, there's so much that kind of, uh, yes, oh, I know, when, this, the cell one, and, the, and you were writing about thriller and, mm. Mm. And, and purple rain. D- <laughs> did you see the article the other day in the New York Times about, I'm blocking on his name. Yes. Uh, wait, was it the, uh, about the African, the West, where, where was he from? Was he Senegalese? Where where he the way he found out that Thriller was actually based on his music. Oh no, I didn't see that. Oh no, I know where it was. It was in the New Yorker. Huh. It was in the, this week's New Yorker, and the when the, the, the in Thriller when Michael Jackson Mama Kande Mama Kande like that the name of the of the of the 
of the Senegalese artist is Mamakande. Huh. That's in his song, and he proved that Thriller was based on his music. Really? Yeah. No, really. <laughs> That's so... But you know, Michael Jackson, it's so interesting how, um, you know, in Nigeria, people are mourning him as though they knew him, you know? And and that line about Thriller and the Purple Rain videos actually is true. My father did, in fact, bring back the Thriller video, which was incredibly popular. And then it was stolen from our home. Oh. <laughs> so, and then uh, my second Michael Jackson story is that once when we came to spend the summer in the U.S., my, my mother bought um, my brothers and I the Michael Jackson jacket from the Thriller video, the red jacket with black. <laughs> and it was sort of pleather, I know, sort of shiny plastic. And it was so popular when we went back home. Everybody wanted to touch it, to wear it. It, you know, Michael Jackson jacket. It's it's amazing the, the effect he's had in the world. But that makes, in a, in a larger sense, is also how. I mean, the African American culture itself has changed the planet. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, it has, and I think it's remarkable, particularly considering the history of of um, African Americans in the U.S. It's it's something that I'm I'm in awe of um, of that. That's an interesting kind of. I'm sure you've explored that and thought about it as well. That the connection, especially between <coughs> African Americans mm. and African Americans. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, that, yeah. The, actually, <laughs> I, I'm told by uh, people in this that they refer to themselves as American Africans. American Africans. So people like my nephew, whose uh. parents are Nigerian, and who in some ways is sort of Nigerian, but really is American. They would be American Africans, uh-huh. but then the people who are descendants of slaves would be African Americans, and there is a difference, and often quite a lot of tension between both. Um, and I think tension based really on ignorance. I think particularly the, the African immigrant community um, don't always understand the history of African Americans, and so because of that, often come to the U.S. and just easily absorb the stereotypes of African Americans and and you know act on them and. Um, so I, I just find that there isn't, in my opinion, as much of a connection as as one would um, expect in some ways. I mean, it's differences almost sometimes between, a, as I feel this reading in your book and your stories, is as when Nigerians come to America, it's people who come and have a culture that sustains them, they bring with them, they have roots as opposed to people who have, have had to create their own culture yeah. to survive. Yeah. They're very, yeah. you know. But then on the other hand, I mean, I've often said that sometimes when people talk about African-American history as though it somehow started on the slave ships, that's actually not, I mean, it right. did start in Africa. Right. I mean, these are people who they did create a culture, but it was a culture based on, on African ideas. I right. mean, there's a lot, sometimes just reading African-American literature, I think, my God, it's so familiar. You know, uh-huh. so I mean, this, you know, there the, 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 the are things that are very familiar for me, and in a way that sort of my Africanness responds to that. Right. You know, um, but but it is true that the cultural, I think, culture as well, just the idea that, um, and also I think that it's not just that immigrants bring the culture and the cultural baggage; it's also that they bring um, a certain kind of um, desire to succeed in the new land. Mm-hmm. Right, and you have all these relatives back home who are waiting for you to send them shoes and bags and, and money. clothes and money, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so, because of that, you, you you're so focused on you know the African immigrants who just walk and walk and walk because they have responsibilities. And um, so sometimes the the lack of a connection 
may not even be something. It's sort of just the the fallout of that immigrant zeal to to succeed materially. And and your characters have that zeal. Yes. Many Nigerians have that zeal. zeal. <laughs> I mean they're they're all through this. I mean it's it it it, it is a as I said, as we began this conversation, one of the things about this book, maybe more differently than the other things you've written, I think because they're so intense and short and focused, is it really int- introducing us to the to Nigerian culture and the struggle of Nigerian culture in a way that you can kind of absorb almost easier because each story leaves you. when you The way you end your stories... I mean, I, I, I was trying to figure out how to describe it last night, and this morning as I woke up, I haven't figured it out yet. But I, my brother says annoying. Annoying. <laughs> <laughs> he says they're so annoying. It just makes me want more. You're so annoying the way you end them. You, you, you I, do want more. I know. I, I, thought, know. <laughs> I thought I wasn't sure whether this was a compliment or not, so I decided not to discuss it with him. <laughs> well, since I'm not your brother, I, I look at it differently. We, we don't have that relationship. So, but the the, the the, but I mean, the way you end these stories is you do want more. But there's a finality and a non-finality wrapped up in the last few sentences of every story. That's and that's actually really good to hear because that is what I think short stories should do. I think that it's sort of like being dropped into a world, and when you're when you're when you come out of the world, the world continues, although you don't necessarily continue with it, but. Right. You sense that it does. So that I'm I, I don't like sort of complete resolution. I don't well, there's like no complete resolution in any of these I stories. <laughs> I, I don't like things too neatly. Uh, and you and you end up worrying about hmm. some of the characters. What's going to happen to her? <laughs> we don't know. We, <laughs> you know, all those things, those pieces. By the way, again we're talking to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Her latest work is The Thing Around Your Neck. Many of you know her from Half of Yellow Sun. She joins us in the studio again. It's great to have her here. Um, though I guess I felt less... The one piece I felt less worried about was the was the university professor whose wife comes back to him. Mm. Mm. You know. Because um, you yeah. feel like he's going to live his life and keep going. And yeah. 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 I, I, I felt that way too about him. I think it's sort of one of my, I suppose, one of my happier stories. It's a very, it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm Despite the underpinning of the Biafran yes. war. And, and mourning and grief and right. you know, pensions not being paid. But I, yeah, but there's sort of a basic um, joy. Now, a lot of people, what I just said, what I just said, may not know the Biafran war. I mean, that took place 40 years ago and when the Igbo decided to fight for their independence and freedom. It was a very horrible civil war in Nigeria, and that that story kind of comes out of that experience. Way before your time, but <laughs> but you were affected well, by it. You know, it's just seven years after the war ended that I came into the world. Um, I was very much affected, but I sort of really feel that um, I, I inherited, and I think this is true for people whose families have gone through um, sort of major trauma. That the kids, yes. you inherit that, you do. And, um, you know, and that it often takes that generation that didn't experience it to to tell the story of it. That is true. And I think that's a story that has to really be told more. I mean, it's... it's it's Yeah, there's so many untold stories about that period. And I I think they will be told. I mean, I'm very... um, 
I'm just full of hope about not just the talent in Nigeria, but how writing is something that people are seeing more and more as doable. And there are many people who want to become writers now. And Right. And it's very exciting. From all over Nigeria. Yes. I mean, there's so many names. I mean, your name is out there now. And, of course, Wallace Inka and Chinua Achebe. Yeah. But Ken Sarayewa, whose son is now f- was fighting shell over yeah. what's happened in the Delta and the oil and being murdered by the Nigerian government. I mean, but all these kind of... The, Nigeria really has sparked a kind of a literary tradition. I, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, it seems, it seems in some ways, and maybe it's because I'm not familiar enough with other writers around the continent, but Nigeria and South Africa seem to have given birth to writers in a different way. Um, I, th- I think we have, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to tone down that um, <laughs> Nigerian sort of aggressive uh, manner. <laughs> you know, I often say that Nigeria is to Africa what the U.S. is to North America. We're sort of the, you know, the big man who doesn't really care too much about his neighbors because, you know, he's big. Mm-hmm. When you think that we're the most, um, Nigeria has the largest population um, of any country. In Africa, one in every four or one in every five Africans is Nigerian. Wow. So it means there are many of us. And so it only makes sense statistically that we that we would just sort of produce more writers. <laughs> and and also we have a reputation for being um not only aggressive and arrogant and um pushy and annoyingly confident and and all of those things. And in many ways those stereotypes are rooted in facts. But so I think it also means that um and I think our history and I think that being um I mean, I do notice quite a, there's a difference between being West African and being East African, for example, that our experience of colonialism was quite different. We didn't have white people settling in, in West Africa. Right. And I think it made a huge difference. I think it made a huge difference in the kind of, um, I think maybe to call it a confidence with which we seized our destiny. Whether, I mean, of course we've made a mess of things, but, but I think it gave rise to a certain kind of confidence in a way that I, I just don't think happened in, 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 in parts of Eastern and of course Southern Africa. And, and I think that that probably played a role. In, That's interesting. Mm, we had this flourishing number, but, but you know, you, you, and today you go to these countries and you, you notice that th- there's a difference. There's a difference in the way that, um, you know, my Nigerian friends <laughs> went to Tanzania, for example, and came back and said, you know, Nigeria is messed up. The country is hopeless, but I'm so happy I'm Nigerian. He said to me, he said, I'm so happy we don't have the history of Tanzania and Kenya. Uh-huh. And, you know, and our own history is very uh, bitter in many ways, but still, still. So I have to ask you before we go is, well, what, 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 what are you doing now? What, what are you working? Can you I talk am, about what you're working no, on? No, we can't. Of course, sorry, I have my, to ask, though. My, <laughs> <laughs> my superstitions will yeah, not permit yeah, me. That's all right. That's all right. Well, we're look, I'm looking forward to whatever it is <laughs> that's coming next. This is just well, a, a marvelous, a, a, a marvelous. Taking this to the beach and having everyone else who's going with us read it. Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. It's just an amazing book. We've been talking with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, A-D-I-C-H-I-E, who wrote Half of a Yellow Sun. And this is her latest work, which is a series of short stories um, that was a National Book Crit- Circle Award finalist. Actually, I think sure, we should have won the award. The Thing Around Your Neck, and uh, just wonderful, lovely tales that are about Nigeria, Nigerians in America, about love, about social issues, about politics, 
but written in a creative way about women. It's just a beautiful series of stories, the thing around your neck. Jamamanda, thank you so much. It's good thank to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Taking a short break, we're coming right back to take you there. Feel So Bad by Little Milton. One of the greats on the harp. Born on this day in 2005. Shake my head and walk away Walk away Sometimes I want to stay here And again I want to leave Sometimes I want to leave here And again I want to stay I shake my head and walk away, walk away. 